You're listening to the Feed the Ball Salon Podcast, Volume 22. I'm Derek Duncan, Golf Digest Architecture Editor, and I'm joined by my co-host, the indefatigable Jim Urbina, golf course builder extraordinaire and general man about the country. We'll be talking today to Andy Staples. A lot has happened since the last time Andy was on the podcast back in 2019, episode 60. Man, time goes by fast. Since then, Andy has just gotten hotter and more in demand. He's rebuilding Olympia Field's South Course and consulting at clubs like Garden City on Long Island. He's also recently opened a renovation of San Vicente Resort near San Diego and the Match Course at PGA National Resort in Florida, where the concept is to play matches, beginning anywhere on any tees, into a variety of greens inspired by the templates of Seth Rayner and other classical era designers. It's a casual, cool concept that's riding a wave of match play revivalism. Before we get to Andy, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to Feed the Ball wherever you get your podcasts, leave a star rating and comments while there, and send your friends a link to this podcast if they're into golf and they like to talk about golf courses. That's usually done through that little icon with the square and the arrow pointing up. You can also visit feedtheball.com to listen to past episodes of The Salon with me and Jim and our guests, as well as dozens of other talks I've had with designers and other golf media figures. Lastly, here's another encouragement to wash your laundry in cold water. It's a simple, easy move that can save you money and energy, and in the process, help the earth. Jim and I had a lot to talk to Andy about, including the merits of simplicity and the influence professional golf and television have had on architecture. But first, Jim would like to read a quote. Sit back and enjoy. You know, Derek, I often wonder in old school designs versus modern designs, the purpose of the greens, tees, bunkers, fairways, and how we've evolved in the new style of architecture. Sometimes I I believe that old is better than new, but I have arguments all the time about why new, why does it, why do new golf courses not get the same credibility as old? But I, I do want to read this from McKenzie, uh, this quote, if you don't mind. I'd love to hear it. And I quote from the spirit of St. Andrews, Alistair McKenzie. I recently visited a course in Montreal, a magnificent piece of golfing country with beautiful surroundings called Mount Bruno. I had seen it in previous years when I played there with the Brina Senior golfing team. In the interim, they had constructed a new bunker a long way off the line of the right of the fairway. I asked them, what was it for? And they said, to punish a bad slice. I remarked, good Lord, if a man slices as badly as that, you should feel sorry for him, end quote. <laughs> And I think to myself, you know, what are the purpose of bunkers? How did the old style, the golden age of design bunkers change uh, as, and, and, and as have changed to the modern style? Bunkers way out, called I call them target bunkers. Uh, bunkers at 320, 330, 290. Mackenzie talks about them adding one to punish a bad splice. And I think to myself, what is the purpose of a bunker? To challenge you on the straight line? To be right in your face? To make you be a heroic style of architecture? Or is it really when we think about bunkers on the peripheral, on the outsides of doglegs, are they really there to punish 
the bad golf. It's a big weighty topic, Jim. I mean, you're really <laughs> giddy. I mean, this really touches on a lot of different, uh, you know, architectural themes and ideas. You know, that was the old, the old penal style of architecture. You know, it was, you know, forcing you to, to obey the straight and narrow. And if you hit a bad shot, you were punished for it. So it was the punishment of bad shots, which is, you know, inherently cruel when you're playing a sport that's so already it's already so difficult to hit a golf ball um, but then and then the strategic school came along and you know it giving the the player the option to try to get closer to a hazard to gain an advantage Agree. but it, it kind of brings to mind you know what john lowe wrote which was you know no bunker is unfair and donald ross said the same thing he said you know the there's no wrong bunker placement. The golfer's job is to avoid it at all costs. So I think that, I don't know if that's an, if it's a new thing or an old thing about placing, uh, you know, bunkers in positions where it's going to trap the good player or the, or the poor player. Um, I'm of the belief that I'm kind of like the old guys, like, like, like Lowe and Ross, you know, I don't think there, I don't know that there's always a, a bad bunker because you can't predict how people are going to, play you know Agreed. you know Agreed. you can't plan for everybody um Agreed. uh so it's interesting you know may, what about the um aesthetic appeal of that bunker too you know is there something yeah. about that bunker that enhances the the visuals of the hole or gives you a certain feeling of completeness or balance when you're looking at it or 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 fear it's, it's you know it, it moves you in some way so it's well i agree with with mckinsey on principle you know the bunkers punish the, the concept of bunkers punishing poor hits is probably not good for the endurance of, of golf and those who play it, but there's a lot of other things that come into it as well. How I'm hedging. That, I'm not answering the question. No, dancing no, I around. Agree. And I agree uh, how ironic that McKenzie talks about these bunkers that are out of play, yet he he was uh, a master of, of putting them at Cypress Point, at Pasachempo, at the Valley Club of Montecito, at Augusta National, putting them out there to, to uh, a part of the camouflage, a part of the enticement, a part of the four, four bunker. He used many more bunkers than he probably should have. He didn't at Augusta National, but he did at Pasa Tempo and other clubs that he designed. So how ironic that he talks about a bunker that was added that punishes a bad player. Yet when you go to Pasachampo, they're all over the place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he writes a lot about you know how most courses are over bunkered, but then he would. <laughs> and you've taught me that you know he he would put a bunker on a on the next hole in the distance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just when you saw it, it wasn't it didn't come into play on either hole, but it was something yeah. that you could you know see. Yeah. When, when when do you think that the concept of the the target bunker became prevalent? Is that a was that I mean a lot of the old courses do have a lot of bunkers. They're very intricate and ornate and on some courses. Some of the old courses had, you know, over 100 bunkers, 200 bunkers. But we kind of think about the target bunker in a more of a modern context and modern firms who are just designing golf courses maybe for the, the visuals more than the uh, strategy or the, the way the playability of the hole. I, you know, I don't know exactly when you could coin a, a time, a timetable, a time frame of the of the target bunker. But I do know that when I go look at golf courses today, it, it's almost, Derek, it's almost predictable. I could pick out the distances of each one of the bunkers just on scale and, and visual, you know, 310, 
290-270, the triangle. And you know, th- those are modern style thinking, mathematical thinking bunkers that are only serve a purpose for one player off the drive. So, you know, was it the 60s and 70s? Was it Mr. Jones Sr. who 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 put dog legs on the inside and outside? Was it the 70s and 80s where they were trying to steer you around the golf course, which is very un, un, un I just don't like that, Derek. I, I I don't mean to get on the high horse. I just don't like an architect steering me around where to play it, where not. I want the chance to to challenge bunkers in the foreground to get into as you said, in the position A. So it, it they became uh, almost uh, template style in the bunkering. I don't know when it happened, but I do know you can pick golf course golf courses in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. They've changed now, Derek. They used to be 260, 240. Now they're 280, 290, 310. They just, they're steering you around. And I, I just wish that, uh, I just wish that, architecture would allow you to discover the golf course instead of steering you around. This is almost an, an argument for, you know, an unscientific placement of bunkers or a randomness, which, which I, I, you and I have talked about, I've talked about in this podcast. We had a whole discussion with Ron Witten about it when he was on about the role of bunkers, you know, should, does every bunker have to have a, a purpose? And Agreed. many architects, you know, in the past and, and recently, have thought that they should you know you hear stories about an architect even even in the classical age of going to a golf course and saying you know what's the purpose of that bunker you know and being critical of the golf course because it didn't (laughs) it didn't serve a a prescribed function for that golf hole so but i i love the i love the idea what you're saying is you know you just present a playing field with obstacles around it and there are many ways to play the hole you know and one for every caliber of, of skill so but that those golf courses are pretty rare and you know certainly in the era that you're talking about 60s 70s 80s 90s yeah. it was much more common to for an architect to set up the prescriptive shots of a hole and mm-hmm. have you say you know it's like connecting the dots you know here's hit the here get to there yeah. hit the there yeah. that's the way to play the yeah. hole so yeah. and you know that's the way most golf courses are right actually and you know the idea that you had to hit it in the center of the fairway to be in position a uh that became what I thought as the modern design and golden age designs were, were a uh, position a could be on the right side of the fairway or position a could be on the left side, not always in the center, uh, depending on distance. So th- that's what kind of, I've become kind of uh, negative in a way. I'll be curious to see what Andy thinks. If, if we have a chance to, to bring that up with him, it's just, you know, are golf courses becoming too predictable? And, you know, are, are the elite golf courses, what I mean, the ones that have for the, offer the most steady, the idea that you really got to look them over uh, 10 and 20 and 30 times to truly understand them? Or is it really that simple, Derek, that we go out and play and have fun and quit trying to analyze everything? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that's how to answer that myself. I, I, I tend to think that we overanalyze the complexity of golf courses a little there's some, certain golf courses that certainly have a lot of nuance in them but you know usually like around the green complexes but you can still go out and if you hit the ball in the fairway you're probably pretty happy if you hit the ball on or around the green you're you're pretty happy and then you'll figure out how to get the ball in the hole from there and that's kind of like the the real level um and that's not to say it's it, it's not important to 
to break down a golf course and look at all the intricacies and and play you know if you had a chance to play a golf course 50 times you you'd learn more about it that's absolutely true but right. does it does it have a, a real impact on the way you play it or your ability to play it or your enjoyment for Agreed. some it does for some it doesn't Agreed. you know you you mentioned that quote from McKinsey, which I which I think is is funny to listen to, and the course that he's at is Mount Bruno, which is in Montreal, which was a, a Willie Park design. And Andy Staples, our guest, consults at Mount Bruno now, so there's there's a lot of symmetry to that. And I don't know. I hope we get a chance to maybe we'll ask him about about Mount Bruno. I'll confess, I I, I don't know much about Willie Park's golf courses. I don't know how many I've played. So I certainly haven't studied him in great detail. Have you, do you know, are there things I about Willie Park that, that you can, you know, talk I about? I do not. I do know that uh, if I was to make one simple categorization, and that's the problem with architecture, is people want to make simple, mm. uh, simple categorizations. Uh, I saw that his greens tend to be a little, rim, a little rumply around them, uh, s- small platforms, a little rumply, a little jazzy, as Pete Dye used to tell me. So that's the only generalization I could make. I wish I saw more uh, that were restored or uh, or kept to, to preserve, but I can't say that I do. And I wouldn't want to speak like some people do, where they read something and then just uh, make a generalization. I wish I knew more about him. I hope we get a chance to talk to him about, about that. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that a lot of people like to be experts, so they boil down a, a particular artist's work or, a, you know, an architect or an artist or a musician's work in, in you know, five, five bullet points, you know, like they believe <laughs> this, 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 and this. And it might be true on one course, but it's probably not true throughout. I, the, only, the only person that you, I think you can, that comes to mind that you can, that it's most accurate to say that it might be Pete Dye. There are certain principles that are yep. continuous throughout most of his designs. But Agreed. other than that, uh, I'm not going to try to do it. I even look and, at Alistair McKenzie's, you know, 13 points of, of design. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> I was like, well, he didn't do that on this course and he didn't do exactly. that on this course. And he, uh, exactly. that's, that's very general. Everybody does that. So, yeah. And I could say the same about Rayner. Maybe you could make generalizations about Seth Rayner that you are, mm. you are going on a golf course to expect to see the four template holes of, of the, of the Eden Redan. A beer Ritz and short. So yes, th- there are certain categorizations of a Seth Rayner design. There are certain principles in a Pete Dye design. The long, that long line that Pete used to always put in fairways, lakes, uh, bunkers, however you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. But I wish I knew more about the golf courses like uh, uh, Mount Bruno. Uh, I'm working in Canada. Uh, maybe it's worth a trip to go over there and pop in to see Ian Andrew and and take a look around or visit with Staple, uh, 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 Andy while he's there just to learn more about it. I'm, I'm intrigued. I do want to see more of Willie Park. Well, maybe when we talk to Andy, we'll bring him on now. We'll figure out what the, uh, the principles of golf are on Andy Staples courses and restorations. Yes, I'm sure he agreed. has an outline and things that he does on every single golf course that I agree. Totally. Leave his fingerprints on it, his thumbprint, so to speak. <laughs> agree. All right. Okay. Thank you. Here we go. Here's Andy Staples. He's gonna lock you to sleep, Andy, and then he's gonna pow you. Well, I gotta, I gotta make sure I don't say anything I, I don't uh, regret. So, but no, it's, it is incredible to be wanted. I mean, it's, it's, it's not anything like I've experienced. 
you know, guys like Jim, like guys like Jim have been able to deal with this a lot in his career. I, I haven't been able to deal with it a lot. So <laughs> being, being uh, desired is this much. Yeah. Well, I like to say, I guess I, I say if I'm going to be desired, I'm, there's a whole lot of other people being desired as well. That's what I have to say about that. That's what I keep hearing is is there's a lot of desire to go around and a, a lot of desirees right now. So I'll ask you, Andy, just to kind of maybe just to, to jump into this. What has the last you know couple of years been like from you compared to what it was like before? Maybe if you can sort of articulate what you've sensed in, in the market and with your clients and the, uh, you know, the contacts that have been reaching out to you. What, what, what has that been like? How do you think about that? And what do you think the reason for that's for? Well, I think the reason is that we're we're in a pretty good golf economy, and there's some there's some golf courses that have had, you know, an uptick in their play and their revenue that they haven't seen, you know, maybe in a lot of people's lifetime, or at least in the terms of the them being members at that club. So, you know, when when the economy's good, you know, I think the phone rings. That's kind of the way it's always been. But you know, I I remember pre-COVID there was that window of time where everybody just froze and just said, okay, gosh, is this going to be another great recession for golf? I mean, we all, we all remember the 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think I had probably four or five things going on and it went to zero in a hurry. So we all froze in 2000, what was that? 20, I guess. And, uh, March, I yep. was watching the, the, was watching Sawgrass, and next thing you know, they canceled the tournament. You're like, oh, so you know, before it was, it was, it was kind of, we were getting out of the recession, and things were kind of moving a little bit. People, people were were hiring. There was clubs talking. It stopped for probably, I don't know, in my mind, maybe three months. I remember I had just started a project in San Diego, at San Vicente, and. And our contractor mobilized, and on Friday, the governor halted all construction projects. And so we're like, oh, no. So everybody just stopped, like, well, what do we do? At that point, nobody knew what was going to happen. Well, interestingly enough, in California, much like other states in the, in the, in the country, uh, somebody got to the governor, uh, the construction industry opened back up, and by Monday, we were building a golf course. And it hasn't stopped since then. That, that was... I guess that was probably around April 1st or so, April, first week of April. So, um, so now post COVID, I think it's been a culmination of, of, you know, the, the old adage, the harder you practice, the luckier you get kind of a thing. Now there's, there's more fish in the, in the lake than there were before. And, and I think just combined with a couple other new media, internet search kind of marketing opportunities people are finding me and 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 i'm getting i'm getting calls inbound calls like i've never i've never seen yeah I, I imagine it's uh one of these things also that is momentum based you know when you, when a club sees another club start to initiate a, a project and maybe it's they've reached out to a, a few people that they're interested in working with and the, those people give them feedback well i'm not available for four years that kind of gets everybody on that merry-go-round going going faster and there's there's this momentum behind getting projects up and getting them going and getting started and it's contagious across the entire industry so it's really about just everybody feels the need they have the resources and they just feel the need to kind of get these things done as fast as possible right now now i guess if that's the case then the question becomes you know how long does this spike last is it is it 
Uh, are there enough clubs out there who still haven't got started yet that you know this is going to be a decade long thing? Is is it uh, you know is it, are we one one recession away? Uh, is it dependent upon uh, some of these new golfers who've entered the market the last couple of years staying in the market? You know, I what's I know you guys. I'll ask both of you this, but you not know, to try to predict the future. But what are some of the other the intangibles that that you think about when you're putting your head on the pillow at night? I don't know, Jim. You're gonna you're gonna uh, predict the future for me here. Um, I, I predicted the future a long time ago. I said that people were gonna put on goggles and they weren't gonna need golf courses anymore. They were just gonna go play 3D in their goggles as they walked around some park. And so I predicted that, that predicted that a long time ago. Little did I know that people had to still interact. And COVID showed that people wanted to be outside interacting. And so my my goggle idea that everybody would play virtual kind of went out the door out the for door. a while. <laughs> yeah. For a few years anyway. <laughs> yeah, so I, it may come back, but Derek, I can tell you that the amount of people playing golf today, as everyone knows, the amount of people that want to be outside, the amount of clubs that want to refresh in their golf, uh, the amount of new golf courses that are going to pop up in Florida it's amazing the amount of energy right now. I hope it lasts for a while because I hope that the the new the new wave of golfers uh, will usher in uh, a, 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 an appreciation for the old stuff as well as the new stuff. So I hope it lasts for a long time. Yeah, or at least the confidence that there's a little bit of a tailwind to keep people playing golf for a little while. I think that's that's the question is, will everybody just stop playing golf? <laughs> so I don't know. I think the way I, the indicator for me is, is how these clubs are, are financing and, and generating their, the money for their projects. And it still blows me away that, that they're, we, we give them additional budgets and the budgets are, are, 20 30 percent higher than what they were just six eight months ago and it's not deterring their enthusiasm because in large large extent these guys have all been planning on doing this these projects for a number of years and just haven't been able to pull the trigger so they they're they're continuing on the, the generally speaking in the private club industry everybody's still okay with assessments to a certain degree that you know the twenty five thousand dollar assessment is it's not really all that that common except for a few top clubs but that you know the five thousand to ten thousand dollar assessment still is is pretty doable many of these clubs still have have waiting lists so as long as there's a waiting list as long as that 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 project has has kind of been funded or earmarked to go i you know who knows what the future is going to hold but i gotta believe that it's at least a two or three season tailwind and that's if it goes to zero uh, you know, for the first time in my career, I, it's it just it's funny that I'm even saying this is that I'm looking out at 24, 25 and and I don't know that I have enough time to do the interest that's coming in and I'm turning down work. That's that's incredible for me to say. And I just don't I, it, it pains me because I remember in 2009, I had zero projects. And so it's it's hard <laughs> for me to think. <laughs> It's hard for me yeah. to think that I would actually say I'm not interested in something that just that that's that does not compute to me. You know, obviously there's good projects, there's bad projects. You want to separate yourselves from all the you know negatives and things, but I give it a couple of seasons. I, I just don't I don't see how it 
doesn't based on the workload that I see. And maybe it, maybe you've not for you and Jim, it doesn't concern you at all because you know, this is your livelihood. This is your, this is what, what you do for a living, but it concerns me a little bit that so much of that the heat in golf is increasingly, it seems, going toward really high-profile, high-dollar projects. Uh, Jim referenced courses being new courses being built in Florida, and there's a, um, I think over the next few years we're going to see a lot of high, really high-end, high club member initiation fee courses being built, and I, I don't know that the same uh, infusion of investment is happening uh, for public golf or on the municipal level or in. in that's going to affect the the highest number of golfers. Do, do you see any any change in that? Is that am I correct in that, or that it, that most of the investment that's driving the industry right now is really on the the private high end? Yeah, it sure sounds like it. Especially when you start talking about Florida, uh, even talk about. You know, the grand plans the Kaisers have in Wisconsin. I mean, that those are big. That's big vision. You know, generally maybe not necessarily high cost, but certainly big dollars going in investment of entire towns and things like that. But yeah, it does. Con- it concerns me a little bit. But what I would, I'd offer this, and as as you know, I've I've been part of community golf for for a lot of years. So I still I still kind of I still play in that market, even though it's it's getting increasingly more and more difficult, just in terms of balancing the workload. But they're always a few years behind. So they're never as nimble as the private side. They're, they're not going to move as quick as as a, as a private developer. And so I, I, I just literally got a phone call from someone I did a report for in 2015, and he's it's a city it's a city that owns a couple of golf courses in Northern California, and they're ready to do some work on their course now. Big full renovations probably not on the docket, but. You know, that was how many years down the line? It was seven years to even get to this point. So I would like to, and, and then I would also offer too that there's pan, the National Links Trust to the USGA uh, to uh, a variety of different public entities are, that, are, that are promoting golf in a, you know, not necessarily in a total positive way, but just not finally now it's not looked at as something that's just going to die on the vine. People are actually wanting to play golf. I have a feeling that there's going to be more effort coming behind this. The question is whether or not the bottom falls out and it gives, it gives them a reason not to do it. I, I would offer that there's not, there's still investment being made. It's just not as high profile and probably not as, as, uh, as known as, as some of these other projects, just because they're not as sexy, so to speak. And Derek, for me, because I don't dabble in the public sector, I wish I had a chance to do it. Uh, I find it, I don't find the appetite for remodeling or refreshing or uh, going back to a style of architecture that once these public golf courses enjoyed. Uh, So some of these public golf courses today have very good lineage. They have Donald Ross. They have uh, several other golden age designs that are a part of the public sector, but they don't see the return on the investment of restoring a Donald Ross or, or Styles and Van Cleek or, or one of those, uh, they don't see a return on the investment. So uh, they, they don't see the need to, to refresh and restore, embrace the golden age design. 
uh, people are out playing, uh, people are happy. So there's not that same intent for work to be done. Sure, uh, some tee grounds, some bunkers, some landscape work. But because I'm not a, a part of the public sector, I, again, I wish I was. I just don't see how that's going to evolve uh, in the next four to five years. A minute ago, Jim, you referenced the new wave of golfers that have come into the market. And it's been not just been the last two years, but it's really been the last five, six, seven years. There's a lot of new passion, new knowledge uh, about golf design in particular. We're kind of in a, in a new information economy and interest level with, with these this kind of demographic of player that I'm referring to. I just wonder, like, where where is everybody going to play? You know, are they going to, where do they play now? A lot of it's it's fairly affluent. And I guess it just, you know, we're at this moment where we have so many new people coming into the game. And if, if we're not also investing in, in, you know, local public places and everything is trending toward, toward private and, and upscale resort play, I just don't know how those two factors, this new demographic who's interested in great architecture and this trend toward toward high dollar high uh, you know membership model, how how those can coexist in the long term. Well I do know that that the the the, the advent of the media uh podcasts uh everybody has uh, a Twitter account or TikTok or whatever you want to call it and they're sending photos of places that they're playing and spectacular holes and and we went here and and we went to Cabot Links and and we've been down to Pinehurst and and so all of those things that that the media allows you to share with your friends instantly uh, drives those markets but I guess you still have to go play in your nine hole league at night in your hometown after work and those are just as important but I do know that. A lot of people still seek out what they see on TV and they want to see those courses that other people talk about. And that will always drive the new market to seek out what others have been experiencing for years. And so the the new wave of people coming in, uh, they want to experience those same things. And so I think there will always be that market for that. But again, they'll still go back to the nine hole leagues, the public golf courses and 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 I think that's very important, as Andy has been involved with uh, at the one you did in New Mexico, for example. I just think those will always always have their own their own group of people that that keep them uh, alive and well. Yeah, I mean, I think the the destination resort concept. I mean, that is that is a bit aspirational, right? Everybody wants to to kind of feel that. You know, experience those things that they may have only seen on on their Twitter feeds or whatnot. So that you know, I think that's really that's what you're asking. Like, is is that really what we have to now determine is our future for the game? I would I would say no. I mean, I think that even as aspirational as that might be, it's still there's a economic uh, reality that there's not many people that are going to be able to do that multiple times a year. So now it comes back to what are they going to do the other times and. I just got to believe that that there's a there's a combination of us just not knowing about all these golfers that are playing in places that you just don't you don't hear about. I, this may not be a perfect analogy, but I'll I'll give you a, a real world example of me here in Phoenix. So, you know, I joined a club when I moved to Phoenix here 
primarily because they were looking for members because no one was supposedly playing golf at that point. Right. And now since then I didn't have any kids. Now, now I, I have three boys, this private country club, which is a nice country club now over 12 years, it's, you know, it's right in the middle of town and it's, it's got all this interest and you can't find tea times. <laughs> the place right. is packed yeah. much less, much less letting my three boys go out. My boys are eight, 12 and 14. So my 14 year old, uh, 12 year olds only all into golf. He take, he's in less plays the U S kids, all that stuff. Well, my 14 plays golf with his friend and they're not they're They like golf. They, they like the fact that there's some freedom. They're like, Hey dad, can we go to the club? And like, no guys, it's, you know, 10 o'clock on Saturday. Can't do it. So they will go to the local public golf course, a municipal golf course, and they'll go by themselves and they'll pay their $15 fee because the city of Phoenix has a really good program for juniors and they go out and carry their bag. And that's happening, you know, and, and they're getting tea times. They're obviously they're not jam packed because kids could come on. They might play with some other people. And so really that's, that's kind of the byproduct of, of this uptick of COVID that people are searching it out in different ways. And I'd like to believe that they're not all certain, you know, I'm not taking my kids up to Bandon, you know, that, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I do and my kids go out and play golf at the local private or excuse me, public golf course. And by the way, I think Bandon is booked like two years out now. And so is <laughs> Sand Valley and Cabot and all these places that we want to go. So uh, no, right. if you don't have your tee time yet, you won't be playing there even if you can <laughs> yeah, afford right. it. <laughs> yeah. I guess, I'm, I, I guess I what think... I'm kind of hitting on is, is this, it's it's a critique of of golf in general is that every time throughout history there have been good economic times and maybe the maybe the kind of the boom in the 60s is the exception there but post that era every time there was kind of a good economy and and growth in golf so much of it of it went to the sort of the top of the pyramid uh, the the distribution of 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 private clubs and, and um, lavishing more and more money on construction budgets and all these things that don't hit, you know, that, that core of, of golf in America, the, the, the people that basically just play those one or two golf courses for all their rounds, you know, those local courses, those, those uh, even for-profit public courses, there's, uh, always there seems to be this concentration uh, when things get going and things are going well toward like the tip the tip of the pyramid and and the wealthy and it, and it just adds to golf's reputation as being sort of like this this sport for the wealthy and the and the, those who have leisure time and there's no I don't know there's not what to do about that Andy you referenced that municipalities uh, are their own worst enemy in getting things done and developed and they're they're slow and bureaucratic uh, so even if you know they had the resources it would take a long time. But it's just a trend and a tendency that golf has to sort of almost, you know, shoot its own self in the foot. Well, on one hand, we talk about the, the benefits of growing golf and having these great courses that are community-oriented. And at the other end, the instinct is always, you know, for developers to go push for high-dollar real estate projects or, or high-end resorts or these private clubs for people who have, you know, already have six memberships already. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that. So on that on that uplifting (laughs) note, (laughs) but I can I can tell you that McKenzie, and I'll quote him here quickly, says, "Above all, I realize that more golf courses are ruined by spending money on them rather than refraining uh, to do so." So, the 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 king of all architecture says, 
well, if you don't spend any money, the golf course will be better. Yet, we always have this inclination that if they just spent a little bit more money, they would be a better golf course, architecturally, agronomically, whatever. So I think that people aspire. Uh, Andy, Andy Staples' kids, uh, his three kids, are going to get tired of playing that golf course one day. And they're going to go, they're going to see something on TV, they're going to see something in a magazine, and they're going to want to go experience that. And uh, my hope is that the foundation for where Andy's kids plays now uh, keeps them interested in the game and that they'll continue to want to aspire to, to be challenged more by the game and what it has to offer. And so I realize the importance of public golf, but I also realize that uh, soon they will want to aspire to do more. And that's where clubs come into place, uh, destination resorts come into place, a chance to experience something different. And, and that's what I know and how I know the game of golf evolves and comes full circle. Andy, your kids will get tired of playing that same golf course one day. No, no kidding. I, I, over the 4th of July, I took them down to my project down at PGA national and we played the courses I worked on down there. And, you know, I couldn't believe what kind of prices they're charging for that place. Uh, that they, they didn't charge me that, <laughs> but it, you know, and they went there <laughs> right? and they went there. They're like, dad, this is cool. You know, they felt there's a certain, you know, like they, they, they love I don't know why they don't know anything about architecture. They know everything about just the feeling of a resort. They went to my courses and mine are a little smaller, kind of fun, a little more relaxed. And then they go over to the, the Nicholas champ course. And they're like, then they play the TV. They play this on TV, you know, and they just wanted to hit it over the water. None of them could get over the water, but they, they feel like that's this and not necessarily aspirational from an economic standpoint, but that game is aspirational about accomplishing something that you haven't accomplished before. And I think, I think as long as we just, we, we keep our, our priorities in order and we don't forget it. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So. Agreed. Agreed, Derek. I, I, I just think that the, the chance to experience something different, something beautiful, the walk, the experience of, of, of uh, strategies and bunkers, uh, maybe not uh, what they're used to on the public golf course, the chance to, to overcome obstacles and, and play something different. Uh, I just I hope that that continues on, so that there will, there will always be another level or another style that people will aspire to play and enjoy. Always being grounded back at their at their local golf course or their local club in the town they reside. Yeah, you're not wrong, Jim, about the the power of seeing a golf course on television and having that drive the desire of of the golf population. I mean, if, if you think about what happened in you know the late 50s when golf started being shown on television and the professional game was kind of peaking at the same time you had really charismatic players you see uh, the we get to see golf courses on live television for the first time ever and it really changed the way golfers thought about golf you know before that it was very regional you know you kind of knew the golf courses that were in your community that you played uh, i think even golf course architects were you know, 80% of them are regional. Uh, and so everything kind of had their own flavor. 
All of a sudden, we get to watch U.S. Opens on TV, Masters on TV. You see the way the, the professionals are hitting the, the golf ball. People want to buy the equipment that they're playing. They want to play these golf courses. Other golf courses and architects see these golf courses that everybody seems to be talking about. So that channels their their vision. And that's a real tipping point in golf design is when to how televised golf changes golf in so many fundamental ways right around, you know, 19, late 50s into the 60s and we're still kind of in in that if you ask if you went down to your local club right now and talk to you know 10 golfers and ask them what you know the the five courses that they wish they could go play right now they would probably all five be a pga tour stop you know pebble beach tbc sawgrass what have you augusta national of course um you know so that still is it it, you know the average golfer knows what they see and, and it just it still has uh, a, a significant effect on, on the, the way the golf industry is run, including architecture. Sometimes negative and sometimes positive. Sure. Absolutely. I think it was, a, I think it was more negative, you know, especially going back into the sixties and the seventies, it was, it was more negative. Now I think Andy mentioned, you mentioned this earlier, we know you have so many different uh, entertainment and informational outlets that you can, so, so, you can hone in on your own message and, and find your own thing that you're into. But for so long, there was just this one u, uh, unilateral delivery of, of a golf concept through the television. Everybody kind of was fed the same dish and got to liking the same, the same flavors. Uh, so now it's, it's not as bad, but it, it did have some pernicious overall effects, I think, on, on the golf course building industry and maintenance. There's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I, I, even the clubs that are not able to afford, even through all this COVID, there's there's still plenty of clubs that are still, you know, middling about that don't have wait lists and things. They all have members that can't afford to go to the stream songs and the cabots and, you know, and they come back, go to Pinehurst every year type of thing. And they come back and say, oh, I saw this there, you know, so they, that there's always going to be some of that kind of influence, but I would still tell you, and I, I talked to a lot of my friends in the design world that it, most most of us still understand that the mom and pop clubs, the club, the clubs that maybe are still, you know, not on economic, you know, footing, strong footing yet. You know, the, the, the mainstay of architects where they would do a couple holes at a time or maybe they'd plan for bunkers and they would do some tees. We all still have those clients now. Maybe the big three or four guys, five guys don't. <laughs> But uh, the Jim Urbinas of the world, the Urbinas <laughs> of the world, <laughs> that we all still you know, we don't want to give up that because we know, quite honestly, we'll both need each other when the time is is there. And I think that is a the one benefit, I guess, of going through the recession like we did. I think we think we we still haven't totally forgotten it, and I think we're prepared a lot better for these types of downturns. Well, let's let's talk design for a second. I, I was going to ask, um, you know, we, you mentioned that, Andy, you mentioned uh, your project in Florida, the match course at uh, PGA National, which is um, it, what was the old Squire golf course, which was really, you know, maybe the members played it, but you didn't go there to play the Squire. Um, but you revamped it. You turned it into a course that was designed to appeal to a match play format. So yardages is not a, not really stressed. T markers are not really stressed. You kind of just peg it wherever you want. If you want the last hole, tee it up. One on one, kind of the old school uh, 
design or the old old school concept of just one hole at a time. You're playing the opponent, and then you uh, put some really interesting architectural features into the golf course. Well, how is what's the reaction been? You and I had a conversation about six months ago or so about whether or not the guests of of a place like PGA National Resort. Um, would buy into this concept or give it a fair shot. What's the feedback now, now that we're, you know, it's been open for coming up on a year now. Yeah. So the old squire, 1983, George and Tom Fazio. And I'm told that that was their last collaboration before Tom went on on his own. I don't know if there's a hundred percent truth to that, but people tell stories about the arguing that happened on that course. So, <laughs> um, but it's, uh, Overall, I, this is what's been the most surprising about the feedback, and that is the so PJ National is still a little bit in a in a, in a bit of a limbo because they still have private members, but they're transitioning or maybe opening themselves up to more resort kind of outside outside play. So I cannot imagine a more polar opposite response. The private members, uh, this course isn't rated either. So there's no team markers, no yardage, so there's no rating. So you can't post a score. So the members there that have their kind of routine, you know, they play this course on that day, this course on that day, um, they're, they are still seemingly skeptical of whether or not this is something that is going to stick. <laughs> um, it, however, it's the best condition course. It's got the most drainage. It's got the brand new greens, uh, you know, brand new bunkers. However, there's only maybe 25 bunkers, so there's not a lot to play out of. Uh, so, so there's been skeptical, if I put it lightly, and then there's the, the resort guests, the people that come in, that are coming from out of town that are playing the champ course and then going to the match. And as part of the squire, we took, we took the first and the 18th holes and made it a little par three course. So we actually took two and made one or took one and made two. So, so the, the first and 18, 18th holes were right next to the champ course. Uh, where they host the Honda Classic, the Champ Course driving range, and they have a little learning center there. So the par three course called the Staple. I had nothing to do with that. Um, that's pretty. But I, that's I'll, pretty. I'll take big it. league to get your own name <laughs> on a course. <laughs> well, they dropped my S. They have to drop the S on the name. But yeah, so the Staple course is right next to the to the Champ Course driving range. So it's kind of a, a bit of a learning center there. So you could just walk straight out, play play nine holes, par three. Then you go through the nine. The, the nine hole course, staple course to get to the, the match uh, has been very positive. And I will say that they, the response I'm getting from the people that don't have the built up expectation of, of what it's supposed to be. They, they love that it's a completely different offering from the champ course and they go play the champ because it's on TV. They, they, they take their five and a half hours to play lose all their golf balls and then they've started to migrate out to the to the match and they're like well i mean they've enjoyed it so the feedback overall has been pretty varied but i'd like to believe that the people that i'm kind of targeting i don't know that i my client was not about private club membership but my client was about developing a resort and uh, and raising the the stature and the notoriety of the the overall resort and i think for that it's been positive and i feel very very proud that it's that's getting the those types of reviews because there's enough people out there that get it and derek that's the problem and that's not a problem but that's the problem i've been struggling with for the last year now is that 
people continue to tell me that uh, we need longer golf courses. People continue to tell me that we need par 72. And if I even suggested 69 or 68 par, uh, they turn their nose up at me. And I, I get tired of hearing about uh, old versus new. And here, here's Andy. Just I'm just going to throw something out there that he said three or four things. He said, no five-and-a-half-hour rounds of golf, no lost balls, go out and have fun. Uh, what is wrong with that, Derek? What's wrong with that? But, see, we can't accept that, Derek. We just we, It's been beat into our head that we have to have par 72 hmm. over 7,000 yards. they see yards. on television. And I'm just, I'm just well, tired of it. I, I got to tell you this story because uh, – and I'm going to make my brother look bad. So I've I got two <laughs> younger brothers. My youngest brother is a more accomplished golfer. He, he runs a, a 80 person tournament through clients and through his business. And so he called me one day and asked where I, where he should take, if I knew of any place that would be interested in taking 80 people and where he should go. And I, I was just finishing the match in the staple. And I said, you got to go to PJ national. So, so he's like, all right, well tell me about it. So I, again, I described everything we, we know about it, the, the one thing, you know, about the match is it's 18 holes, but if I was to, you know, peg it out to the very back part of every single point I could get, I could maybe get it 5,900 yards, 5,840, I think is on a measurement because the, the scorecard has a minimum yardage and a maximum yardage, and then you can tee off anywhere in between there. And so I described it to him, told him about the part three course. And he says, well, my brother says, well, Andy, I've got some very, very serious golfers here. I, I don't want to play a 5,800-yard golf course. I want to play golf. I want to play real golf. And I said, that's stop it. I mean, let me give you some a little bit more you know, discussion around this, and let me tell you some – You know, I said, well, it doesn't have tees. And he's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean it doesn't have tees? Said, How am I going to do my tournament? i gotta, I got to tell everybody because what they do is they, they have nine-hole matches – What's interesting is he's telling me about his tournament. I said, well, tell me how you play. He's like, well, the first nine holes, we do scramble. Next nine holes, we do alternate shot. You know, the next day we come around and we, we play uh, best ball and we finish off with an alternate shot and a scramble. And I said, I'm like, I'm like, perfect. You could not have explained anything better than what I just did at the match. And so it took me forever. He actually, there's, there's the Fazio, there's the Palmer, there was the squire and there's the champ. So he was all set up to play the Fazio and the champ. And I, I basically told him, I said, man, you're going to, you're going to make me upset if you go all the way out there, if you don't play the match. So you can imagine where this story went. So he took 80 guys out there, figured out, got out there earlier, tracked it all out. Okay. I'm going to have to put tees up because I want everybody to play from the same spot. So they worked with the club, had a whole match put out and it ended in like, he, I just saw him over the weekend and he, my brother was just like, I, I, you, you nailed it, Andy. It couldn't have been any better for our format. We played fast. It was an incredible alternate shot golf course. And it ended with him saying that a group of people said, why did we even play the champ course? Because we, this is the type of golf. It just feels fun to play. The greens are interesting. I don't have to hit it a mile to get there. Every, every good player likes to have little tough little chip shots and things. And it turned out to where, it, it spoke this kind of back to the, what the feedback has been. This is one of those experiences. Like I got the feedback that I was absolutely looking for. And Derek, 
if you if you were to go to an owner, uh, luckily Andy had uh, a couple other golf courses that people could experience the norm, so to speak. But yet, uh, as long as Andy had a couple normal golf courses by him, he was able to produce something that was a lot more fun and entertaining. And and if I went to an owner today and said, you know, all we're going to do is is 5,800 yards, par 68. Um, uh, people would look at us like uh, you're nuts, you're crazy. But because you have a couple normal golf courses around you, that's the problem I struggle with, Derek. What is normal? What is normal? It seems like it's really about exposing people to these different alternative, if you want to call it alternative, or just different different versions of, of the game of golf. Almost to a person, I shouldn't say that, let me back up. There are some people that will go play the match or go play uh, someplace like the cradle and not, not treat it like real golf. You know, it will just be a diversion and then they're going to go back to their, the way they always play on their 7,200 yard par 72 golf course and count all their strokes. But exposing people to these, these different types of golf or, or when they go to the Pacific dunes and, and put around on the punch bowl, the light goes on. So many, so many people come away from those experiences realizing they didn't know everything about golf, realizing that the kind of golf that they play every Saturday and Sunday is, is, is a little, uh, is, is a little redundant and gets a little boring and, and variety and, 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 and spice is, is interesting. And there are different ways to enjoy golf. So I think it's just about exposing people to these different types of experiences that will switch them on. I guess it sounds like Jim, the people that you know you're you've been dealing with lately that have got you in such a bad mood, they, have, they haven't been <laughs> been to these places and experienced you know these these other forms and seen how infectious it can be just to go out and and and, and play a match and, and get creative with the architecture and 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 like Andy said, like have to try to hit all these these difficult little uh, short game shots around greens. Just as an aside, I, I struggle with it a little bit too because as I oversee our, our course ranking panel for our 100 greatest and best in state list, and one of the categories that we've had since the, you know, since as long as we've been doing it, I'm not a huge fan of it, but it's, it's there to stay, is called Challenge. And when I assigned people to go play the match course, I, had, I got numerous people coming back and saying, well, I don't know how to score this this course it's you know there's no t markers it's only 5800 yards so i just don't know what to do with it and i said well did you find it challenging at all i mean that's the category it's not about you know that category is not about how long is the golf course or how difficult it is it's about how challenging you know did you make 18 birdies no you know why not <laughs> if it's so so easy you know did you have to think yeah did, you know did you have to hit creative shots around the greens yeah were you faced with some uncomfortable recovery situation sure there you go that's the course was challenging you know mark it up you know grade it on on that criteria so there is this thing that that people often golfers often don't know how to handle these or, or appreciate these golf courses until they get to the point where they experience them and then the light goes on and and they become they often they often become quite enamored with that style of golf and you know i think we're on this progression where we're going to see more and more examples of golf that are like this in different places and and the more we see those being developed and hopefully we get away from you know that 7200 yard mentality and well, i'm going to ask you this yeah, how, many, how many times do you have to in consulting work and even laying out new guy new designs how many times do you have to defend the par? 
How many times have you asked about what's, the first question is how long and what's the par? And you feel like you're having to defend that for no better reason than to dispel all the notions that uh, 7,500, 7,600 yards, par 72 is somehow considered to be the ultimate goal. And yet you spend your whole time, Andy, I do, defending what par is. I'm, I'm kind of tired of defending par, if that makes sense. Yeah, Jim, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's almost like there's a generation of golfers or multiple generations of golfers that have, that's all they've ever said. That's all they've ever asked. You know, general managers are, you know, really, you know, a good indication of this. The general managers for some reason are always asking about what's the final yardage. You know, if you're going to put some back tees, did you get it over 7,000 yards? You know, no, you know, the, the idea of the marketing of the course, it happens. It happens a lot. What I would, what I would say is that now today, as we sit, the first time that I actually feel like I can have those conversations with people and they won't automatically say no. And I think the match was, was a, was a first kind of exercise there. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but you know, the idea of different par I've, I've seen now I'm offered. So we asked this question about design. We asked the question, well, how do we challenge better players? Well, the best play, the best way is to lower par, take the exact same course, make it one or two pars less. So so let's take a par five and make it a four and make it a par 71. And then God forbid, we might do that same thing on the back nine and make it a par 70. And, you know, I'm having those conversations with clubs right now for the first time that, you know, 10 years ago, we weren't doing that. Even five years ago, we weren't doing that. So yeah, it's it, it happens. It happens a lot, but I will say it's easier than it ever has been. Well, you're lucky because I can tell you that Derek I got the scowless look from a member when he said, I said, you know, the cheapest way to make this hole better. And I took an eraser and I pretended like I could erase the par five uh-huh. and I scratched in and put a par four. I said, that is the cheapest you, way you could make this golf hole a little bit more resistant to scoring because that was important to them. He yeah. didn't think that was very funny at all, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't laugh with me one bit. And yet it is that simple, but it just always seems to be defending par and St. Andrews defending par. Why, why do you have to defend par? The guy who had the lowest score, he, he wins. Why are we spending so much money defending par? Yeah. Well, it's, it's just, such, it's, it's what we all grew up with, you know, to, <laughs> it's all we've ever known. And we're thankfully though, we're in this place now over the last 10 years or so where we are getting the match courses and other, other flavors and uh, more and more people are starting to open their minds and be willing to consider the importance or non-importance of par or yardage or, or find other things about playing the game of golf that are just as invigorating as trying to shoot a low score uh, or, or hitting the perfect six iron. You know, there, there. We have opportunities now, and we have places you can go where you can get different flavors and and find the thing that you like about it. And that really didn't exist, you know, much more than ten, fifteen years ago. There were a few places, but you know, you mentioned going back to your your new wave of golfers, Jim. Uh, 
that mentality doesn't seem to exist as much with them. They're into the Sweden's coves. They're into all these, these, these different places. They want to travel. They want to go see good architecture. They're not just about, you know, wearing the white belts and, and, you know, and their equipment. There's that element too, but more than ever, I think we have adventure seekers in golf and I think that's going to be good. And I think eventually if you're around long enough, they'll be, (laughs) they'll have the, their, their hands on the, on the purse strings a little bit more than they do now. And they will be the the voices in the club that push for, for more variety and and more different uh, modes of golf. But uh, let me ask you this, Jim, do you, in your interactions or your observations, I'm, I'm guessing that part of the, what I'm talking about is, is an appreciation for old classical architecture that this new generation, it brings up. Do you get a sense that that is the case? I do, and Andy has to feel the same way. Andy, I, uh, Andy, are you at Olympia Fields? Uh, working at Olympia Fields, yeah, yes. yeah absolutely, yep. Yeah. So uh, here you have a a, a, a gorgeous old style Olympia Fields that has been tweaked with a little bit, you know, played with a little bit. Yet, how many people want to embrace what Olympia Fields used to be versus? The, the modern take on it today. I think there are more people who want to experience the old South Olympia fields uh, and what it has to offer. I'll be curious to see if, if, if Andy sees that, that, that new style of architecture, I'm sorry, the old style of architecture is appealing to the new style of player. Do you feel that way in South Chicago? Andy? I would say overall that I would say yes, but I would say back to this kind of kind of internal golf traditional struggle is that you've got, you got guys that are out there that just, they just go hit a golf ball. And, and I put these little fancy little chocolate drops behind the greens. They, they didn't even know they existed. Right. Cause they're heads down trying to hit shots. But um, I would tell you that it's trending to the point that architecture does matter. And those types of things start to connect dots primarily because they all go travel and they come back to their club and say, Oh, wow. Look at that. that. Those same drops. That was at Somerset Hills. Yeah. Or, you know, the, the ditch. Well, that's a cool, I saw that at Oakmont. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think there's way more appreciation for that than, than, and that's trending. That, that certainly is becoming more, more of an interest to more members. And to me, Derek, when you asked me the question about, uh, are those the new wave of golfers embracing that? I hope that they are because I love Derek, you know I love old man. I just wait. I you just do love old. And what? someday, or I'll, I have a couple routings that are out there for new style of design. But yet, I I went back to the old style layouts where a bunker was right in front of you instead of it on the end of a dog leg, like a target bunker. Who who needs target bunkers? I need something <laughs> in front of me to challenge me, and, and that's the style of architecture that I would bring to a modern-style layout. But the idea that you have to have target bunkers and you have to steer golfers around, uh, Derek, it's been the last tough six months for me. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I can sense it. Yeah, I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> I just, you know, Andy, how many target bunkers are you going to build? Oh, None, no. I hope. Uh, no. Yeah, well, I, go ahead, Jim. Jim. McKenzie talks about making them impactful. If you're going to yeah. put one, put it right in the line of play, not on the end of a dog leg where yeah. only the hackers hit it. 
Oh man. Yeah, I would say that a lot of this conversation is stemming from, you know, the not only the the old school golf construction and golf design, but also the old school way to play golf. And you know, when was the last time you all went out to play with your with your friends and offered to play an alternate shot? You know, go four ball. And uh, you know what the, the idea of your your buddy who can hardly hit it at 180 yards and slices it over to the woods, having to hit that into a uh, a par three or you know bounce it into the you know into the greens, and I feel I feel a lot of the the intentional old school architecture is best reflected by the old school way of playing the game, and there's only a certain way, number of ways that you can play the game that way. And I think by changing the the format away from just pure stroke play and more team events, more match events, things like that, gives you that opportunity. And I will say that that's, that's been the, the focus at the south course of Olympia Fields is that I see these old photos. I see they used to have two other golf courses, so I pulled in some other photographs of, of the old course from William Watson and you know, Tom Bendelow and William Watson worked together. Then Willie Park came in, and so there was this huge variety of of styles and, and uh, features. And I will say most times they're all located and built in a way that realizes that the ball isn't in the air and doesn't stick and stop on a dime. It's about running on the ground. And I reflect the architecture for that. Yeah. I've, that, that's absolutely true, Andy, that the style, the, the mode of golf. And, and I do think that it, at a lot of clubs, there's a lot of match play that goes on. You know, if you get in a foursome, if you have a regular game, it's usually you and your, your buddy or your partner against these two other guys, or you mix it up. So there, there is, I, I do match play has always been around. It never went away, but in the psych psyche of the American golfer, again, going back to what we see and, and what we perceive as the, the best of the best, the best courses, the best play it's, it's a 72 hole metal play tournament where every stroke matters. And, and that had an effect on the way courses were designed. We saw the, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we saw the elimination of, of quirk, of, of um, you know, the, the, the desire to eliminate poor lies. The bunkers had to be smooth. They weren't hazards. All of this gradually became to uh, this place where we sterilized golf courses in the name of metal play uh, because there was no tolerance for unfairness. But when you go back to an alternate, alternate uh, you know, a foursomes or four ball, uh, match play events. You don't care if you make a, a three on a hole. Your team. You, you. If you win a hole seven to eight, you've won the hole. So you're much more willing to tolerate a bad bounce or a bad lie or something that's unconventional, a blind shot, a deep bunker, a f- being in a footprint. All of that was very common to golf up until a certain period of time when this flip to to your point, Andy, to, to stroke play being the predominant ideal of golf or how we considered ideal tournaments to be held uh, kind of took over and, and dominated the sport. We've lost that that acceptance of, of various varied outcomes uh, by getting so far away from, from this one-on-one match play format. No doubt about it. I mean, I'm a huge foursomes fan and my buddies here in, in uh, Phoenix, they kind of get tired of it, but they've never played it before. And all of a sudden I started you know, like, how do you maybe watch the Ryder Cup? You ever heard of that? So, yeah, I think, you know, I'm not saying it has to be for everyone. What I am saying is that certainly in the match course, I thought about things in a way that 
were a bit more heroic, a bit more recovery oriented, a bit more what happens if you did hit the ball up to the green and it was a par three and a half that it wasn't quite short enough to be a three, but as viewed as a short par four, uh, that I think that there are ways to actually instill that kind of that kind of game into design. And, you know, it's, it worked at, at the match. I think, I think it'll work other places. I know that they're going to try to do some of this up at sand Valley. It sounds like, you know, I think there's more opportunities. It doesn't have to be for everyone, but I certainly think it needs to be for some. And to me, when you have to defend a bunker and you have to defend a style of green and you have to defend the location of a tee, then you're really defending, as you said, the stroke play mentality. Well, what if I get in that bunker? And what if I land on that steep green? And what if I'm out of position on the tee? So all of that thing is defending that stroke play mentality. And I'm just tired of defending bunkers. That If you're in it, you're in it. And that's the price you paid. But if somebody's as the Mackenzie said, the card and pencil, I'm counting every stroke. It could wear on you. And I could see why people would be bothered by the layout of the land. But, man, I just I agree with you, Andy, playing the foursome at Muirfield was a turning point for me in a lot of ways because I realized the game was faster, the game was more entertaining, and it wasn't about counting how many strokes. So, I didn't worry about penal bunkers, penal greens, locations of tees. That it just the stroke play changes everything, Derek. And I just wish we didn't count on the stroke play as the standard of of, of architecture and design. Yeah, yeah, that's easy to say. It's harder to do. There's it's it's in our game, but what I do believe that we can do, and this all and it even goes back to the way you start people into the game of golf. You know, so I have an eight-year-old, 12-year-old, 14-year-old. We play alternate shot. My eight-year-old and me play against my two other other boys. And I would just challenge us to to think of it in terms of training the next generation and, and, and opening our minds to doing something different than just, you know, slap around for 90 strokes after you, you know, play on a Saturday afternoon. And Derek, somebody asked you, what did you shoot today? You know, that's the... <laughs> That's the end of all end questions at the end of the day. What'd you shoot? Yeah. And that's when I'd say my six beats your seven or my seven beats your eight. <laughs> and as soon as I say my number, I'm instantly judged. <laughs> yeah. Right. As soon as Those I are say hard habits to break, though. I mean, come on. <laughs> like that's, you know, that's, that's the start of every, every post round round of beers after every golf game. There's you no shoot? question. That's how the beer starts flowing. Yeah. What did you shoot? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah, and then I ask you, did you record your score, Jim? Did you put it in the computer? <laughs> uh, Derek's played with me, and he knows about what I you think. You better put that. that 73 in the computer, Jim. <laughs> I can tell you. I mean, when you actually think about it, if you, if you just be a fly on the wall to listen to, like, hardcore golfers, it, it it's quite phenomenal, that subculture of – jargon and what's important and what we're wearing it's it's and you get a group of them together and then god forbid you have to ask to ask them to pay to improve their golf course oh my gosh what a what a uh what a, <laughs> a group of people but derek i do enjoy their enthusiasm don't get me wrong passion, passion. i do enjoy their enthusiasm <laughs> but i wish their whole lifestyle wasn't judged on what they scored on the final tally in the scorecard 
That's all. Yeah. yeah. Well, Andy, we, you, we talked about Olympia Field South uh, for a minute. You've, you've helped your consult and work on other golf courses too. Getting back to this point um, about styles of design and, and, and sort of a match play mentality, its influence on architecture and a stroke play influence on architecture. When you work on or travel or see golf courses uh, that were built after World War II, do you notice um, a real shift in what the points of emphasis, either in design or construction, were versus the courses that you've worked on or seen that were built prior to World War II in the Depression? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, it just, that's the that's the whole shift that happened through the 50s and 60s we're talking about in development golf and you know, the dark ages, so to speak, as we've kind of dubbed them. There, there's no question. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously, obviously, properties are, are different. Routings are different when you're when you're combining them with with real estate developments. Uh, but what else do you yeah. know? What are some of the biggest differences that you see between the two eras? So I think, to me, what I've spent a lot of time learning and studying is is green design you know there's so much talk about classic architecture and bunker styles and things like that but you know the biggest thing that i see i i I just the same course down in san diego i was telling you about that was a 1972 ted robinson uh, a little bit of housing but mainly you know it was was kind of built in this ilk it was we had all the drawings we had all the green details it was built by a large excavation company with a big, you know, big bulldozers. And, and, you know, when you, when you study some of the old greens and what makes those, you know, our great courses as great as they are, is it really comes down to putting surfaces and the strategy around, you know, how it's sloped and, and angles and things like that, that I think the biggest, the biggest loss I feel in, in, in this period of time after World War II is just this lack of, execution and great green design and great i mean routings are all kind of what it is all right the housing the engineers said it had to go here but at the end of the day the architect still was a part of instilling you know still you know sound design principles and you had to execute them and i think they that's where they missed and i you know a lot of courses in this now that's not grand not all of them but you know i would say that's probably the biggest is is the is the shaping of the greens and how the green design really was predicated on you know almost built by a machine more than by hand or by the way they did it the old days Jim is that something that that you would yeah you've noticed in in your travels it was hurry up and get it done <laughs> I just felt that uh, and that's why I defend golden age designs versus you know, that era as we started to come out of World War II and the modern design was that there was the little details. There was the little finicky stuff. There was the little, as Dave Axlin has kindly pointed out to us uh, in that uh, very uh, telling uh, idea, uh, four feet, four inches. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mo- After World War II, it was more four feet. It was four feet <laughs> everywhere. We didn't have, we didn't have four, all four inches. Feet. Uh, Andy, uh, we had uh, we had uh, uh, a very good talk uh, with one of Bill Coors' best guys, Dave Axton, yeah, and we were talking about the difference between four inches and four feet. 
And post-war became everything was four feet. There was no more four inches. And, and Dave Axon swears that the, the coolest things happened within the four inches. And that's what was lost. And, and I, I defend the old golden age designs in those last four and five inches instead of the four feet. And, and, and that's what catches my attention, Derek. And I, I tend to always have to define old golden age designs by those little things and not the big things. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you one gets the impression that the top designs of the pre-Depression era, and we're talking about the top because there were thousands of courses built that were, you know, rudimentary nine-hole courses out in the country, just service the local population. But the best courses that, that we study now were really that they – the designers were thinking about the game and the ball and how people were going to approach it and how how and making them think about what they were going to to, to do to to make a score on that hole or or to execute a shot. Whereas post war, I think the emphasis became more about functionality of the golf course, efficiency, how it was going to be maintained. And when you think about a golf course and the success rate of building a golf course that functions well and is easy to maintain as and is economical you're going to flatten things out. You're not going to think about the nuance. You're going to make sure that you can get equipment on it. And all of these things take away, take away from the, the nuance, Jim, that you just said that makes any golf course, whether it was built in 1923 or, or 2023, interesting. But coming out of World War II and into the 50s and 60s, there were, such a, um, there were so many courses built so quickly in the 50s and 60s. And then the... It was really get people through, make them efficient, um, make them functional. And you had a generation of architects who came out of universities. They were uh, landscape architects. They were engineers. They were land planners in some cases. So they just viewed golf design as something different than uh, than C.B. McDonald or Seth Rayner or, or George Thomas did. It, it was just a different yeah, I mindset. Kind of, I, I kind of, you know, th- that's a really good point, but I, I still think, those guys were traveling and seeing things. They were playing all those old golf courses. So there was either, it was either a concerted effort to do something different because it was new and innovative and we could be better. Certainly a lot of that, or they just didn't understand how to build it. I think it comes back to, you know, this idea that, that a piece of equipment was building all these golf courses. We had the advent of a golf course shaper and these shapers were turning into rock stars and, they were going all around, you know, the world building, building golf courses uh, for different architects, and they put their imprint on it. Uh, whereas the architect that was that was in charge of all that, I still believe that they all knew what was good golf. I can't believe that they all said, "All right, well, I'm not going to build Cypress Point, or I'm not going to build greens like, you know, you find at, you know, you know." Somerset Hills, you know, I already brought that up, you know, whatever, you just go down to the ideas of, of where they all saw it. They said, all right, well, I'm going to make it flatter and I'm going to make it more boring and I'm going to put a bunch of mounds around it. I, I just don't, I just don't think that they thought of it that way. You know, I, I, I feel like it's still a, uh, it still comes down to what Jim, I think I agree hundred percent, get it done. The, the idea of speed, speed plus a superintendent uh, that's ultimately going to be there to mow the grass making sure it's maintainable. I think those are two big factors of it. And let's just say, I mean, it, it, it obviously, it, without that period of time, there's no way we could be where we are today. That is, that is for sure. That's a fair statement. You mean, you mean that 
we had to, golf had golf architecture and construction had to go through that learning curve that that period before it could reinvent itself. Yeah, I almost feel like it had to. That that was a period of time that everyone thought they were going to do something better or different, and they 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 didn't. <laughs> so, I mean, I think good design is good design. Just because it's old doesn't make it good. That's at for the sure. time they thought they were making it better. Yeah, well, I no, really no I doubt. really believe that. I think they I think they believed they wrote about it in uh, frequently about the the course of the future. The modern course was superior to the old old course right, with with drainage right the drainage plans and yeah. catch basins and, and it was you know, it was everything. yes it was all about kind of functionality and yeah um, you're right there yeah yeah but andy, that doesn't can I, andy can i ask you an honest question sure. honest sure jim shoot sure. you really think that modern golf courses are head and heels above golden age designs as you see them today I mean, it's a pretty strong generalization, but no, they're not. I mean, I, I would take a golden age design over a modern post World War II design, and I'm saying pre 1990, right, or pre 2000. Yeah, I I take golden age every day of the week. That's how I that's how I grew up playing golf. Uh, that's the way I, I I I started on a Bill Langford golf course, West Bend Country Club, where as a as a three holer, if I hit it into the playing for grass slopes i had to hit a wedge out over the top of it because i couldn't advance it it's just kind of the way i was i feel like i was just brought up that way so um, i take that every day of the week and yet people tell me derek that uh modern designs have have taken technology and the golf ball and the equipment and made the game uh, more interesting and and i think they've made it more mathematical I think that modern designs have taken the math part of architecture and design instead of what Mackenzie talked about, the pleasurable uh, art of architecture and design. And, and I, again, I hate to be the defender of Golden Age, but uh, and there are no, some you, good... You like to be the defender of Golden Age, Jim. What's that? <laughs> you like to be the defender of Golden Age. I love it. You wear it's the hat good. well. You wear the they, you know, what it, people tell me, you're always defending those old dead guys. <laughs> yeah, but but, but break out, break what that, break out what that means. I mean, old dead guys, you know, they, they built, they routed the golf course well, they built great greens and they positioned hazards in a way that was, you know, fostered the game of golf at the time. And then in, in a lot of respects lasted a long time because it's still, still interesting and, and whatnot. The modern approach was, let's try to do all of that, but let's make sure it drains. Let's make sure that the greens aren't too steep. Let's make sure that there's catch basins where you know two percent of a three percent fall. If it goes more than two hundred feet, we got to put a catch basin. Let's make sure all the bunkers are sloped in a way that you can see them. So that was the refinement. It was building off of what they thought was lacking, you know, his, hidden hazards and too steep of greens. When in fact when it actually comes down to it, when you defend the better player, really the best way of defending a better player today is through the greens. And you go back into some of these greens that are sloped at 3% on tilts. You know, it's one of the reasons why uh, Olympia Fields North course, you know, defended itself at the 20 BMW. I mean, of course, if everything happened perfect, it was dry, it was wind, there was no rain, but it was because of the greens and the way the green, the pins were set on these, these angles and these, these edges. And 
and that's that that's come full circle. Those green, the green design is what is going to be, in my estimation, the only way to kind of bridge those two those two eras into what we think the future is going to be. Is there a good era and a bad era, Andy? I wouldn't say a bad era is certainly better than others. Uh, I, I mean, I, you know, I've got brought up at my first couple of jobs were I worked on a, on a, a, a Tim Nugent and a Jeff Brower course that was working for Wadsworth. That's how I was brought into just full art, you know, construction of, of an architect's uh, design. And, you know, I just think, you know, I, you know, there's good and there's less good. How about that? <laughs> there's interesting and, and less interesting. Right. <laughs> interesting and less interesting. I like yeah. that better. Yeah. And Andy, you, you said something earlier. You said uh, even the old golf courses, there were some duds back then too. I don't disagree with you. There were some duds. Uh, we, uh, everybody has a few in their life. I just, yeah. I just recently in the last seven, eight months, I just, I just kept feeling this, this, this tension of, 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 you're always defending those old dead guys. Uh, modern golf courses are just as good. And, and then I ask him, tell me your five favorite golf courses. And guess what? Yeah. <laughs> well, but define what the, mo- with some modern principles that were, that are new and innovative, you know, if, if, if pretty much when you, when you answer that question, you, you, you stop at pretty much everything with Pete Dye, <laughs> you know, tell them you want to go here, but make them go there. You know, um, you know, the, the idea that, that there's a, you know, the penal aspects of, of, of a water feature. I mean, there, there's some things that maybe you can find that are new design concepts that happened post-World War II, but there's not many, you know, it still comes back to this idea of angles and, and, whether you're defending a, a long ball hitter or are you trying to get someone to navigate around hazards, you know, to me that it, 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 you can talk about whether or not modern golf courses are better or worse, but when you narrow it right down to what the, what the core philosophies are, they all basically are the same, same things have been going on for 120 years. And that, my next question to you, Andy, can a golf course be uh, as interesting for a, a star player, a tour professional, and can that same golf course be interesting for the average member or the bogey golfer? You've, you've asked the most, the easiest question to ask and the hardest to answer. So, yeah, I mean, if the best, the, the, in my estimation, the some of the best golf courses that do that are the oldest. Now there might be some, you know, you go you go to you go back to PJ National, you know, the PJ uh, National Champ Course that challenges the best players. One of the lowest score low or the highest scores on tour every, every year. Of course it gets windy and it's, if it's raining, it's wet, it's hard to get the ball to roll, but uh, you know, that's not very pleasurable for uh, an average player other than the fact that they get to play a course that's on TV, you know, but you go to, you know, the Wyndham just, you know, it's going on or the, you know, goes to Riviera. Riviera is the perfect example of that. You know, that those are the types of philosophies that, that I feel, and length isn't number one, but they, they certainly do that. So yes, it, it can be done. Uh, it's just, it's, it's done with older principles. And it's very few and far between. Riviera is a great example, Andy. One of my favorite golf courses. Uh, he got me, Derek. He got me. Riviera is one of those that 
uh, is for all levels of players. Uh, very few of those. I still, it, 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 you know, I keep harping on the greens just because I feel like one of the, one of the places that we can continue to advance as a, as an industry is just understand how to create great greens. And it's one of the things that feel like, like if I'm going to continue to do great work, it's going to have to be around putting surfaces and, and, uh, you know, really when it comes down to it, if you're, there's only so many 340 yard drives that you can, you can contend with or protect against, but if you're going to get them hitting wedges into these greens, they better be, they better be uh, strategic and, and challenging, if you will. And jazzy as Pete used to tell me or softer and uh, faster. Right. And that's the, that's the dilemma, Derek. Uh, do I jazz up the green as Pete used to tell me just jazz it up a little bit or is the, is the idea that, that flatter and faster uh, uh, is the way to go. And, and that's, that's my dilemma. Yeah, now flatter and faster or jazzier and more entertaining. Now we're back full circle to golfer's expectations. And sadly, we know that the average golfer judges a golf course's excellence on its greens and how often how fast they are, you know, what kind of condition they're in and how fast they are. And to have fast greens, you can't have a lot of contour. So now we're, we're back to the beginning, aren't we, Joe? <laughs> and Andy, I see that I see the, the tears rolling down your cheeks. <laughs> and I, I would say to Andy, is he is is his defense of the good greens jazzy, as Pete Dye used to tell me, or flat and fast? I, I I can tell you, it's not flat and fast. So one of the things I've been doing a lot of, I've been convincing some of my clients that have these old has an old set of greens. Uh, two of which are old Willie Park greens. I've gotten them to scan them, and you know, green scan. Old Scott Poole putting putting the scanner on and actually marking out contour lines, and then breaking out those greens in a percentage basis. So zero to one percent, one percent to two percent, and so forth. And it's incredible to see, you know, when you color code these greens, and and by all accounts. Anything over three percent, no matter what what speed you're you're going at today, even ten and a half, ten, ten and a half, because there's not many golf courses that are less than that, at least in a above average uh, condition. Agree. Uh, anything over ten, ever anything over three percent is considered unpinnable. But when you look at some of those greens that they built that have stood this test of time, uh, now they did it for other reasons. They did it because they wanted surface drainage, the green speeds were obviously not 10 and a half or higher, but you look at them today, there's, there's maybe 15 or 20% tops that are quote unquote pinnable. Fair enough. But yet these, these are the greens that are hair to wingfoot. I've seen some, some scans of wingfoot. It's like, these are the greens that are, are heralded as some of the best greens and they are, you know, On the edge. jazzy, if you will, <laughs> they're not flat and flat and fast. And see, Derek, that's the dilemma. Uh, uh, what is a good green? Uh, what is a green that defends, that defends some of the best players uh, and their scores? Is that important? Or do you want to build a golf course that's, that is member uh, applicable uh, for, for all levels of players? And, and I've, been, I've been scratching my head uh, forever. I don't think flat and fast is the way to go. But uh, some people will tell me, that's the wave of the future, Jim. That's the wave of the future. 
Well, I think it's I think it's the wave of the past, and as we've been talking about for the last hour or so, I, I do think there's there's more of a taste than there's ever been for creativity and, and interesting greens and and nuance and contour and that that's exciting and it's it just goes back to exposing people to it pushing through it uh letting people get a taste of it um and there'll always be you know there'll always be plenty of golf courses that have super slick fairly flat uh flat greens um that's what the pga tour shows us every week but there's a growing taste for something different and just hang in there because we're, we're moving in the right direction. There it is. He's showing me the, the, uh, the, the, the heat Where's scan. Where's that? Look at the, the blues. I call the I heat must scan. must be real bad. That's yeah. Sankety Head. Uh, that's uh, two cool pulls green scan of Sankety Head. There you and go. And so the entertainment value at Sankety Head is pretty high up there. Throw in a little wind, Andy. Throw in a little dry grass, Andy. Throw in a little of those things. And those jazzy greens can still be entertaining. But... If you take them, Andy, to 13 and 14 on the speed, on the speed, mock speed number, uh, they're not so entertaining anymore. Yeah, I I get a sense. I don't know if you're seeing this, Jim, or not, but I, you know, anybody that pushes a green speed past 11 is pretty extreme. I I don't know that superintendents are good. They're in that you talk about real good going from the golden age to the to today and going through that. they've, They've had a lot of positive a lot of negative, but a lot of positives. And they've been, one of them is green speeds, but I, I can't believe that we're going to ever get to a point where someone may, would ever roll a green at 12 or 13 on a regular basis. Derek, these guys are good. It's not, I'm not talking about tour players uh, and the commercial. I'm talking about superintendents. They have, they've got this down to a science and they, the speeds that they can hit. And I'm thinking, when's it going to stop? Well, isn't that, and this, I think we should probably wrap it up on this, but isn't that part of the, 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 the obstacle that's preventing uh, you, Jim, or you, Andy, from, from building greens that are as creative and interesting as possible? Superintendents, unless they're, there's a, a small percentage of them that are very enlightened and, and think the way that, that you guys do, but for the most, the average superintendent spends his, his or her career trying to get to that place where they can execute their art to the highest level and get a green that can roll 14. And you're telling them now you want to, you want me to do a, a, you know, maintain a green that rolls nine, (laughs) you know, that's just, it's just (laughs) anathema to what they, they're conditioned to do in their profession. So 1000%. Yeah. So that's a conversation that I know you guys have to have every place that you go is, is if, if you can't get the superintendent on board, your chances of doing what you no want to chance. do and having success at that is very low. They, they're trying to reach utopia, and I don't blame them. Uh, Andy and I are trying to reach utopia in design and thought and art. And yeah. sometimes they're diametrically opposite, uh, and how they can uh, coexist, that's also a tough one. Andy, as we go out, I want to ask you this question, because I've only been to Scottsdale and, and Phoenix a few times. What are some of your favorite places to play where you live in Scottsdale, Phoenix, that section of Arizona. Yeah. So if, if people are coming into town and I, I tell them where they need to play golf and I first ask them if they're going to be, you know, are they club members or are they, are they looking to just play the, the public golf course? Cause there's a pr- pretty big difference. So I'd say the, 
places I tell them to go, no matter what, are Talking Stick and Wicopaw. Those are some of the best. Bill Coor, Ben Crenshaw do the, you know, in my opinion, the longest standing top, top notch work. You'll always have fun there. There's always a casino there, so there's always some place to stay. Um, the most interesting, my most favorite golf course, you know, the one I love to play. I don't get to play it very much, but when I do, I love it. Is a, is Estancia, which is one of Tom Fazio's best, and I think Scott Hoffman had a lot to do with that. That's a really good golf course. And then I would say, as we start to come down, the other interesting one is Desert Forest. You got to hit Desert Forest. Uh, but if you get back into the public public side. Uh, there's a place, there's a public golf, city golf course called Papago Park, which is yeah. right down by my street, by my house. I I love playing that. It's it's you know it is what it is, but it's a uh, it's affordable and it's and it's desert golf. It kind of is a a bit of a poor man's desert forest, if you will. Desert forest is a lot more penal. Um, so those are the you know Phoenix Country Club. I I got to give a little little pop for uh, a new client of mine called Phoenix Country Club. It's uh, our, our really our own city club, you know, established in the late 1800s. Harry Collis in 1921 built it. And it's been kind of tinkered with over the years, most recently by John Fote and Tom Lehman. And it's a, it's a real unique place that not many people want to go see. Cause I don't know why it's, it's uh it's a pretty good. It has a pretty good bones. It hosts a, a champions event at it, so um, you know and we're going to do some renovation work on it, new irrigation, new bunkers, probably some green work. So it's hopefully going to get better. Right? But uh, that's how I'd answer that. I've seen them all, Derek. The ones he mentioned, I've seen them all. I'm going to be curious what he does with Phoenix Country Club because that is a nice walk, some nice green sites. I'll be curious to see what he does. I'll go check that one out for sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Deal. Papago's got a good good restaurant, right? With some uh, lively scene there. Yeah. So so from a community golf standpoint, that 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 nailed it. They they had a couple of donations from local uh, local businessmen, uh, Greyhawk, uh, Phil Mickelson. I think had something to do with it. But it is the place now for families to to come hang out on Friday night because it's they got a driving range right there. There's a putting green. There's an open lawn. They got a nice, they oftentimes they'll have live music outside. It's an open bar kind of concept. Much like if you've ever been to Greyhawk, you play go up to Isabella's. It's kind of the south side of Phoenix, uh, family-oriented place. And so that's another place that my kids like to go play just because we always meet them on, on Friday night after they're done. That's so great. Andy, anything else? Did we, did we cover everything? I had no idea the directions we were going to go on this we kind of got off on some tangents yeah hopefully yeah i mean this is good i appreciate it the you know the one thing the one thing i was gonna i was trying my best to try to come up with a quote because i know you know a long time listener here you guys always have you start off with great quotes i couldn't come up with a good one because jim jim takes them all but (laughs) you know the end of the day you know have being on this being on this uh this podcast kind of reflects a lot of where I stand with my business today. I've got a quote I want to give you. Do you mind if I give you a quote, Jim? I don't mind. Go ahead. Well done. Um, well, it comes from my friend, Bill Bartels by way of Mr. Tom Tanto. Tom Tanto is an irrigation uh, contractor out of the Northeast. And, and it's a, it's, it's something that I, I wish I learned earlier, but I'm glad to be on this podcast. And, and so I quote, 
It's all about relationships, Jim, end quote. <laughs> and and I appreciate you guys having me out here. Uh, I really do appreciate it. It's, it's good to talk architecture with you. And, and I'm just, I'm, I'm fortunate to be in the arena, so to speak. So thank you. The water's warm. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Derek, Andy's on fire, man. He's going to take off. Like He's going to take your job, Jim. I'm going to going to take off like a rocket. Yeah, you better watch your back. I, you might be replaced. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, good stuff. Thank you, man. Andy, hope to see you soon on the on the road somewhere. All right, ten four. Back at you, Andy. Jim, another fascinating, cool, just cool guy to talk to. I'm a big fan of Andy Staples. Uh, had him on the podcast before. I've I've, I've met him and, and spoken to him a little bit. Um, off podcast and just one of my favorite guys just he's laid back he's cool he gets it and and he he knows what he's doing too and one of the things that you know you and I talk about this a lot on this podcast and people who listen to me know that I'm real I'm particularly interested in the post-war architect period not because I'm a you know I think those golf courses that were built from 1950 to 1975 were better than any other period they're most decidedly in most cases not there's something you know lacking about them but i find that the concept of investigating that and, and trying to figure out the reasons behind why those golf courses are the way they are just like in you know building and skyscraper architecture of that period why did those buildings turn out the way what were what was happening in society and culture and art and ideas that form the the basis for the architecture or the music or the film that comes out of any particular era so and and I don't I think that th- that era has often just kind of written off and f- from a user perspective I get why but I think it's it's hasn't been explored you know deeply what the motivations were behind it and I find that part of it incredibly interesting and Andy had a uh, an a really interesting thing that I hadn't really thought about specifically before when I asked him what the big difference was between courses that he's aware of and he studied built in the 20s versus after World War II and he kind of boiled it down to he said he said green design you know they didn't put as much thought and effort or or detail into the green designs it's almost like they kind of got in they, they had a set of plans they got in they built it they got out and that's there's sort of um, a vacuousness to the to so many of the golf courses that were built in the post-war war period and I, and I, I kind of ag- agree with that. I think, I think that's, I think that's mostly true. Um, and it, it got me thinking, well, why would that be? What are those, some of the reasons? And some of the reasons are technology, you know, they had more at, at their disposal. The architects of that period were, you know, came from universities. They were land planners. They were, they were, had landscape architecture degrees. They were engineers. They came from uh, agronomy school. So they were more highly trained there. There there's the, the push to be efficient and economical in golf course design and the other thing that I didn't mention that, that I kind of thought of while we did that was after you get out of World War II, you have the Trent Jones area, you have the Dick Wilson area, and those those architects going all the way through modern times developed a style. They almost had a brand. Trent Jones had a brand. And the golf architects of the 1920s didn't have a brand. I don't think any clients or clubs hired a, a Donald Ross or a, a Perry Maxwell because they said, I want a Perry Maxwell course. You know, they hired these guys because they were regional, because they were available, because they just did quality work, because they were well-known. But if you hired, you know, Donald Ross or, or Tillinghast, 
you didn't think, oh, I'm getting a Tillinghast course because they designed in different styles. You know, every property was different. Tillinghast designs like different everywhere he went. You know, Ross's courses are different from the southeast to the northeast to the Midwest. They did. They just they just built golf courses and they adapted to the site and to the labor and the manpower and the budget. Whereas in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you have guys who are known for something. You know, you get into the to the you know you get a Jack Nicholas course. You get a Robert Trent Jones course. The clients hire them because they have a style and a brand. And I think that's another difference why so much of the, the golf, so many of the golf courses, you know, from 1945 to 1975 are, are a little bit homogenous. They're not all, but, but the golf, as we built more and more in the 60s, especially, they kind of all kind of assumed a certain style, a certain look, a certain, a, a certain scale. Uh, certain green design as well. Um, I don't know thoughts on that. I'm I'm rambling a little bit, but but that's what no, I, you know, this concept of having a brand as an artist became something that was a, was real more so in the 50s and 60s and 70s than before. And I agree with you that the greens were not as creative. Uh, uh, maybe a little bit bigger, a little bit more gentle. Uh, the bunkers weren't very creative. Uh, uh, we talked about it with Ron Witten, the jigsaw bunkers of the 60s and 70s. And so at the time, and maybe that's why I don't have a love affair <laughs> with the 50s, 60s, and 70s of architecture, because I just don't see anything that captures my imagination, like the golden age design and maybe some of the new stuff. But greens, bunkers, layouts, they kind of all started to look alike you could say the same today, Derek, that some of our designs are all starting to look alike. You know, the modern, uh, the, the, the new the new era of design, the, the ones that people are gravitating to, frilly bunkers, jazzy bunkers, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, the bunkers became the, the style. Right. And, and some architects uh, 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 use the greens as well. Uh, so now we're looking for those great photos with these special bunkers and uh, that's what the 60s and 70s didn't have. They had the big jigsaws. So I know that you keep trying to 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 find the the, the golden diamond, the, the shiny diamond in, in 50s and 60s and 70s. And I just don't think if you find it, let me know. Uh, I'll join you. I just I, I just don't think they were as creative as the golden age designs. And I think that what Gil and and Bill and Ben and and the new guys are doing today uh, are just just so much better in in the detail work, and that's what I don't think they ever had. They didn't have the detail work in his fifties, sixties, and seventies. And you know, Andy made a good point. Uh, he talked about that when he was doing the match play course down in in Florida. That Tom and George Fazio's golf course was everything about being a hard golf course, and they he knew that he wanted to do the match play course that would be different, fun, and entertaining. And that if you wanted to go play that hard golf course, have at it. Uh, people enjoy it. It's well-kept, all those good things. But he was going to do something different. And so his point about the greens, I just don't think the 50s, 60s, and 70s paid attention to detail. It was mass production, and, and I wish I could find the little detail stuff that I look for in Golden Age designs and the new era past sandhills i wish i could i could think of a name uh, uh what what are we going to call after sandhills 
that was kind of like the new start of, of, of getting away from the 60s and 70s and 80s. What did Sandhills give us? It gave us the details. It gave us the cool greens. It gave us wonderful topography. It gave us bunkers. Uh, and I just don't think that after the war, World War II, we'd had the details in place. Yeah. You know, some people call the current era the golden age, the second golden age. I, okay. I, I don't enough. like that term. I don't use that. You know, because a golden age to me signifies a spark of originality, you know, like yeah. a, uh, a creative mode, whereas really what this period in is hearkening, going back to the past and, and reviving the lessons that had been forgotten or lost or ignored right. after right. that. So it's neoclassicism. It's referring back to a classical area in a new way. I call it neoclassical naturalism, which I think has nice alliteration, but uh, I don't know, you know, that hasn't caught on quite yet. But um, I think I if anything... I can't say if, that word, Derek. I know. I practice it every day in the mirror. <laughs> if anything, we're in, a, we're in a, a golden age of golf development. I think in the last 20 years with all of the Mike, with Mike Kaiser basically leading the way, but, but others as, as well, taking golf, ignoring demographics and, and ignoring conventional wisdom and, and, and traditional economics and taking golf into places where it belongs in these great landscapes and letting the, letting the, the consumer find you. Um, yeah. That's, that's the real breakthrough is, is, is bucking convention. That's, that's a creative uh, uh, thing that, that we've gotten into. If anything's golden, golden, that's it. But I was going to, you were going back to what you were just saying about the lack of creativity in the, in the post-war period there. I think there was creativity. I think those courses were creative for the era. Cause we have to ignore like everything that came after that. If you, t if you just transported yourself to 1962 and you had just come from 1928 you would look at the golf course and say, wow, these are, these are different. I've never seen this before. This is a completely Agreed. different presentation. Look at this, the orientation, the size of these things and the, the way these greens roll. So the architects, I think we're doing something new. It just got proliferated and didn't go, it maybe didn't take the next step from there. But here's what I was going to ask you. Is it even possible now in the year 2022 to build a new kind of bunker? I mean, has every top style of uh, and and shape and depth of bunker already been done because that's my criticism when we say what, what you're just talking about how golf courses now are are becoming the homogenous and looking all the same because of the naturalistic look is there a, is there an alternative is the alternative to to just go you know all the way you know just to a different style like when andy built the match course i mean those are template holes there's yep you know there it's and you know the bunkering is kind of like Rainer-esque and you know it's not completely original it's 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 deriving its its uh motivation from something from the past so i don't even know if is it possible to do anything new with the way golf courses look at this point you know i i keep hoping that i'm going to walk around the corner and see the next new golf course and see something that's new and original it it, it appears to be regurgitated a uh, borrowing from the past and putting a spin on it for the future bunkerless golf courses you know yeah. we've 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 over bunkered now we're not going to bunker at all and uh is that the new trend uh well where i'll just put hummocks and hollows and 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 ripples that will mimic a, a hazard uh no bunkers uh, derek i keep looking uh that's one of the things i got caught up in our podcast with with andy 
was that I'm just at this point right now that I don't see something new and original. I do like what Andy did in the match play course because it was opposite of of uh, of of what what is down there the the Tom and George Fazio design. It's opposite of that, so that's good. Pete Dye did the opposite at at Hilton Head uh, because he wanted to build small greens, completely different than Mr. Jones. So that's a good thing. All those things are good things. But new and informative, now we're going to go bunkerless golf courses. And uh, maybe we're going to go to really jazzy greens uh, and slow the speeds down. Wouldn't that be cool if we slowed green speeds down so that we could have way more entertaining greens, uh, a lot more fun and, in, and intricate? I don't know, Derek. I, I just keep waiting. I've thought of different things to do. I just keep waiting. And, you know, some of my ideas, owners would say, you're nuts, man. Get lost. We want those frilly bunkers. Yeah, they look better in magazines. You were you were getting a little salty in our conversation. You were <laughs> like that. I like that side of you. Yeah, you, you've had enough. You've had enough. These seventy two hundred <laughs> yard par seventy two BS. <laughs> I've had enough, man. I I I you know, and that's why it was so cool to talk to Andy about the match play. And if I don't, if you don't mind, I'll I'll steer into something else. Yeah. His kids and him go play the local golf course and they go out and they enjoy the game. And it's not about the par and it's not about the yardage. They're playing as a family and they're walking and the green fee wasn't $225. And, you know, you didn't have a valet uh, grabbing your, your, your bag and, and uh, cleaning your clubs. You just go play. And it was so refreshing and maybe that's why I got salty because I just I I it made me want to go uh, uh, slam my trunk with Andy and his kids and, and just go walk and play six holes or eight holes. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. That next thing. Yeah, you know, when we mentioned Papago um, and Andy's build, spent a lot of his career advocating for community links and community golf. Yeah. And Agreed. the match play is a great example of that. I mean, you know, I don't know what the green fee to play, play the match course is. It's probably higher than we'd like it to be because it's associated with the resort and, and all that. Right. But right. That, that concept of having a short, sporty course designed for match play is something that I think it, that there are lessons to learn from that, and I think you can apply that. But we talk about courses like Papago and other uh, these community courses, and they're really great because they – and I, I I wish I could think of some others off the top of my head that exemplify this, you know, um, but but they, they're great because they are, are places of gathering. They're inclusive. You see families there. It's everything we want about golf. But the one thing it's not necessarily is they, of course, and just use that as an example, but others, it's not, they're not always great architecturally. They're sound, they're good, but, you know, they're, they're not as intriguing as, you know, the golf courses that are, that are private and elite, the ones we study, the national golf links of America, you know, <laughs> they, the, they're not that. And, and I think we're starting to, to get a little bit of trickle down Charleston uh, municipal golf course that uh, Troy Miller yes. did is, yeah. is completely, um, it, you know, it's a template Seth Rayner template golf course, yeah. but it's public. And if you live in Charleston, you can play it for, I don't know, $30 or something yeah. like that. It's that's, yeah. that's great. Now you're bringing 
really interesting architecture into the public sphere and letting everybody get a taste of that. And that's where I'd like to see public golf go. In addition Agreed. to being inclusive and having families and, 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 you know, moms and dads and grandparents playing and open yeah. doors and people of all uh, cultures coming yeah. and playing, you also get the real meal, which is good architecture, compelling architecture. Cause you, Derek, you and I both know that we seek that out Yes, because uh, uh, the the mundanes of the world, although they're fun to play with your friends, you're still looking for some some shot that you've never played before, some feature that you've never carried before, some putt that you've never imagined before. You're still looking for those, and so I agree with you totally. The Papago Park, the Charleston uh, City Municipal. There's a golf course in San Diego, the Loma Club, mm. uh, just uh, just uh, outside of the San Diego Airport. Uh, I wish I could build 20 of those, the Loma Club. People out playing, they have uh, concerts at night. Uh, the Goat Hill Park with John Ashworth and th- what he put together there, a community, a fire pit, uh, people uh, doing all that stuff. Well, I wish we could celebrate that more, Derek. I don't yeah. know how to celebrate it more. I wish we could. Winter Park 9 is another Winter one. Park 9. Winter Park exactly. 9. Um, Corica Ryan Park. Johns and Keith Rep. Yep. Corica Park. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in outside of Oakland is another one that yeah. their North course that they're just finishing up is yeah. wild. I mean, it's gotten yeah. really cool movements to it. That's architecturally compelling. So it, I think yeah. it is happening more and more. I think we're getting into yeah, a, a generation of people who want to take on those public jobs, who are able to, who are able to withstand all the bureaucracy and red tape that it takes to get a, a you know, yeah. public course, private public foundations coming together and making it happen. It's a, it's a big undertaking. Uh, but the architecture I think we're seeing coming out of that is influenced by the great golf courses of the last 20 years, you know, know. the, the stream songs and the sand valleys they're taking kind of that kind of thing. Although the, the Rainer Renaissance and bringing those elements back into the public sphere. So public golf is becoming more interesting. Uh, the park in, um, uh, West Palm beach that Gil Hans just finished up. You've yeah. seen it. I've seen it. Yes, that's, yes. that's outrageous architecture. Now, unfortunately, Agreed. if you're from out of town, you're going to have to pay two fifty to play it. But the local, <laughs> if you happen to live in, in, uh, in Palm beach, um, yeah. it's, it's yeah. going to be very affordable and, yeah. and it's going to yeah. be a place of gathering for a community. So it, it is a good time. We just hope to see, uh, I guess, more of it. Uh, Agreed. And, and Andy's, Andy's made a nice contribution to that. He has. And, and I'm, I, I celebrate that with him. He was he um, was really kind of on the forefront of that. I think he's yeah. been he's been on that that train and that horse longer yes. than than most people have. Yes, and now he's getting to dabble in in the Olympia Fields of the world yep. in in South Chicago, and and now he talked about his uh, new golf course, uh, uh, Phoenix Country Club, uh, where he's going to get a chance to restore some Golden Age design, or maybe that not Golden Age, but that uh, post-war design. So he's going on both directions. Uh, That's why it was so nice to spend time with him. Uh, We all don't get to do that. I hope he does more of it, more match plays, uh, more municipals, uh, more interesting architecture uh, uh, for a lower price point. If you, yeah, if you were a developer or a club or a resort and, and, yeah, I think Andy would be on your short list of guys you want to work with. He, I mean, he, he's he builds compelling golf courses. He he's great to deal with, and he's you know he's kind of on the cutting edge of what's going on. He has Agreed. great force foresight. As we leave now, Jim, I have to point this out since we're talking about this. Common ground, common ground <laughs> yes. is the the poster child for what we're talking about. 
a community it course. It, it, how many rounds a year does it do? Uh, 35, 40,000 rounds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, great, you know, yep. for being under snow for several months of the year. Yep. You, it's packed all the time. And when you get on the golf course, yep. I, I think the variety of holes at Common Ground is is yep. unmatched Agreed. for for a, a public golf course, you know, that, that is that anybody can go play. If I you look at those holes, oh, love that place. And when you talk about what you're, you're looking for a, a putt that you've never made before, a bunker that, that you've never carried or challenged before, uh, a dog leg that you've never experienced before, contours in the land, common ground does do that. I try not to, I, I try not to talk about it too much because of my involvement with it, but I love the place. Thank you for bringing it up. It does have the architecture that takes it to the next level. You know, is it $10 around the golf? No, it isn't. But it's not $100 either. And that's the fun part of it. Well, thanks for Andy for coming on. That was a good conversation. Agreed. I think we talked to him Agreed. for like almost 90 minutes. So <laughs> it's a nice guy. Yeah. And we didn't He's even, we didn't nice even guy. ask him about, you know, Willie Park or any, you know, any these really kind of meaty architectural things. We spend a lot of time just kind of shooting the bull and that's, that's kind of what makes these conversations fun. And that's what makes him a, such, a, such a enjoyable person to talk to. Uh, no ego, not going to ram anything down your throat. Uh, not trying to, to be the, the, uh, the, the know-it-all, uh, just a nice guy. And, and you know, he's, he's going to just take off with more and more jobs and I wish him all the best. Such a nice guy. God yeah. dang. Such yeah. a nice guy. All right, Jim. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Until next Thank time. You. All right.